0: Tonight we are uh, actually going to begin a new series of studies uh, that will last for a few weeks, uh, probably five, six weeks, something like that. We're going to be looking at the life, the times, and the ministry of Elijah the prophet. And uh, the the title of the series is is Elijah, God's troublemaker for troubled times. And uh, I, I hope it'll be useful to you. But you know, in preparation for tonight's message, before I read the text, I, I just want to make an appeal to you. Uh, w- when one starts teaching a series, it's, it's really just not possible to plunge into chapter one. You have to start with some kind of foundation. There has to be some, some groundwork laid. You know, you, you don't just go out into a field somewhere in, in the middle of a field and prop up a house. You have to lay a foundation first. And so uh, uh, the problem with that is I'm afraid that perhaps the pouring of concrete is somewhat less than titillating. And so I want to assure you that what we're talking about tonight is foundational. Uh, this is the appetizer. And I'm afraid that for some people it may not be all that appetizing, but but this is the introduction to the whole thing. So so listen tonight, take your notes, uh, keep it, uh, file it away, and then remember that the, the, the real vittles come next Wednesday, okay? So don't hear tonight's message and say, is this it? No, this is, this is not the main course, that, uh, but I feel we need to lay the groundwork before we get started. So next week, we're going to really plunge in into the goodies. So um, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to be re- begin reading in verse 28. And, we'll, and tonight, we're going to read just through the first verse of chapter 17. And, uh, and so go, go to that place in your Bible in 1 Kings 16. Uh, and just hold your thumb there. But let me, before we read it, let me just give you a, fru- a few pr- preliminary m- remarks about the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and then we'll then we'll read the text. Because First uh, and Second Kings largely relates to the history of the succession of kings that followed David in, in the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And then the, and then the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles relate the history of the kings who correspond to them in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, it gets a little confusing for us modern readers because we use the word Israel, and we tend to think of the modern state of Israel that includes most of the territory, which was at the time encompassed by both Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And I'm going to give you some generalities, which that's generally not ideal to do, but in general, Israel, the northern kingdom, is the weaker the the more morally corrupt kingdom, and if you want to contrast the the two kingdoms in in a very broad sense, you could say Israel is the bad guys and Judah is the good guys, though they are all certainly jews however the the history of the northern kingdom of israel is 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 much grimier. Than the southern kingdom of Judah, though the the kingdom of Judah certainly had its gritty elements, but in general, the northern kingdom of Israel has always, more or less, been an idolatrous kingdom. The books of First and Second King and First and Second second Chronicles are, in my opinion, four of the most exciting books ever written in in terms of uh, of literature, uh, story content, of plot. Uh, characterization, action, adventure, the lessons being taught. I believe that that, uh, uh, one could could spend one's entire ministry preaching out of these four books of the Bible. Now, I don't want to get too caught up in the history, but it is really important to understand the history uh, of this because it's impossible to understand the story of Elijah the prophet Unless one understands something of the history and the context of these two countries, Judah in the south and, and Israel in the north. Now, having said all that, let's begin reading with First Kings 16, verse 28. So Omri, that's the king of Israel, Omri slept with his fathers. That's just a Hebrew expression that means he died. So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of King, uh, of Asa, King of Judah. Now, now don't get confused there because throughout 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, what the writers do is they try to tie the, the stories of the two kingdoms together. So the story that they're writing about may be entirely about Israel or entirely about Judah, but what they do is they try to, to date it by telling you who was the king in the other kingdom. So you may be reading a story about Israel in the north, uh, 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 but they're telling you when it happened by referencing the king of Judah in the south. So here in this story, this story has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with King Asa. They're only telling you when it happened. It would be like you reading a story about Emperor Hirohito of Japan and in the story, it would say when Franklin Roosevelt was president of the United States. It gives you, in your culture, a time reference where you can understand, okay, this is when this is happening. Let's, let's pick it up again, verse 29. In the 38th year of King Asa of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. The sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were seen as minor. It was, it was a small thing to him. It was nothing to him. The sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were seen as minor for him to walk in. For he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of, Sid- of the Sidonians, as his wife, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He, speaking of Ahab, raised an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Ahab made an Asherah, which is, that's another idol, to another false god. Ahab made an Asherah and did more to provoke the Lord God to is, of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who preceded him. In his days, Hiel, the, the Bethle, Bethelite, excuse me, built Jericho. He laid the foundation at the expense of his firstborn, firstborn Abiram, and set up the gates at the cost of the life of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will not be dew or rain these years except by my word, or, or unless I change my mind and speak differently. Until, until I change my word, he says, it will not rain and there won't even be morning dew on the ground again. So uh, I want to I begin to this series tonight on, <clears throat> excuse me, the series on Elijah the prophet by by giving you some background of the situation. I, I know that, that there are many people, now I, I like this kind of thing, but I know there are a lot of people that don't enjoy, they don't like background historical material in a Bible study, you know, we just want to get to the devotional content of it. And that's going to come, I'm going to give you some of that before the evening's over. But the truth is, it's impossible to really understand who Elijah was and what the thrust of his message to his generation was unless we understand his generation. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, had 19 kings. They were all of the house of David. That is, they were all descendants of David. And they ruled completely for 345 years. And during that, those 345 years, they had several uh, frequent revivals through that period. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there were also 19 kings. However, they were of nine different dynasties. And th- those nine dynasties lasted only 210 years. And that's because the reason it's shorter is because Israel was carried away into, into captivity before, year, many years before Judah was. And of those 19 kings lasting 210 years corporately, 8 of them were either murdered or committed suicide. And in those 210 years there was not one single spiritual revival in the northern kingdom of Israel. You know following and then following the death of Solomon and the coming of the throne to Solomon's son Rehoboam, you may remember the story If not, you'll have to look it up. I'm not going to go into it tonight. But Rehoboam's arrogance and his pride and his egotism precipitated a rebellion and a secession. And the northern ten tribes of Israel seceded and they formed their own nation, just as the southern states of the United States tried to secede from the Union and they tried to form the Confederate states of America. And when the ten northern tribes seceded... That left only the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And those two tribes formed the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes, these ten tribes of the north, founded their capital, capital in the city of Shechem, which is on and around Mount Ephraim. Now when Rehoboam became the king of the southern two tribes, when the nation split in that, in that moment of time, and, and Rehoboam became the, the king of Judah... It was in that moment that Jeroboam became the king of the northern ten tribes and he ruled in the city of Shechem. And Jeroboam, uh, he, it, when he took over and when, he, when the, that northern kingdom was given birth to, he built two golden calves at Shechem. Now he did this for both political and religious reasons. Now you, you need to understand this or you won't understand what happens a hundred years later. Jeroboam felt that it was that if the people had gone who had gone into rebellion with him those 10 northern tribes if they if they continued traveling down into Judah and, and into Jerusalem on high holy days and on feast days to worship in the temple, he reasoned that sooner or later they would begin to say, why are we doing this? We, we keep Why are we continuing to traipse all the way down to Jerusalem and worship in the temple? They would begin to say, why don't we just quit this silly war and, and reform the whole nation of Israel along with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and, and just become one nation again? And that was a a threat to his reign it was a threat to his power therefore Jeroboam reasoned to himself that they would kill him and that the revolution would end so Jeroboam knew he understood that he needed to give the people of the north their own capital city which he did at Shechem and he also knew that they needed their own center of worship So he built a false temple at Shechem, and there he put two golden calves. And this is what he said to the people. He said, behold the gods that brought you out of Egypt. You you talk about angering God. (laughs) It's interesting that he would say that, though, isn't it? Why would he say to these people, behold the gods that brought you out of Egypt? Well, he did did two things. One was that he found some minor point of cultural and and traditional and biblical linguistic and and literary identification because there is a golden calf in the story of Exodus, isn't there? There is. Aaron built one. You remember that? Aaron made the golden calf. So, So it is in the story. And so Jeroboam found... He found some vague point of identification and counted, uh, in return, he counted on the complete biblical illiteracy of the generation in which he lived. He counted on the fact that nobody would really sort through this thing. He he said, Aaron built a golden calf when when we came out of Egypt, and he said, it's the golden calf that brought us out, and here it is again. He says, I've actually reestablished the old religion. That new temple in Jerusalem, that's all David's doing. That's Solomon's doing. That's Rehoboam's doing. However, I, Jeroboam, have gone way back before David. I have gone to our real roots. I've gone all the way back to the desert. I've gone all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. And here is the golden calf that brought us out of Egypt. And he counts on the fact that the people would, would like that kind of cultural and semi-religious oatmeal and that they would swallow it whole and not really sort through to get through to the truth. Isn't that devious and wicked? Isn't it? Well, my, my dear friends, it is done all the time. All the time. People just shine the light on some remote, obscure little passage of Scripture and then bedazzle some little group of people and then haul them off into the wilderness and build a, to build a utopian kingdom. We're going to build a kingdom the right way. 2,000 years of biblical uh, exposition and gospel teaching mean nothing. I'm the one that has really seen it. I'm the one that's received the real revelation so, so they build, you, you know, uh, the, the church of the seven water pots or something like that. And, they, and they, you know, they say, we are the first people to ever really understand the story of Jesus changing the water into wine. So they put seven water pots up on the platform and establish a whole new denomination. And they just count on the fact that people will go for it hook, line, and sinker. They count on the fact that people are biblically illiterate enough that they're going to swallow what they say because it sounds profound. And that's what Jeroboam did here. Jeroboam severed the cord, spiritually and politically, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he he introduced institutionally into the very lifeblood of the northern kingdom the, the religion and the practice of idolatry. So then, many years later, later on, Omri, the father of Ahab, he, he was king at that time, and he, he bought a mountain. He bought a mountain from a na- man named Shemer. Shamer, Shemer, excuse me, S-H-E-M-E-R, Shemer. And there, on that mountain, he built another capital city. Only he didn't name it she- Shechem, but he named it after the owner of that mountain, Shemer. He built a city called Shemeriah. Or known as to us, Samaria. And Samaria became the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, from that time on, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, many times throughout Scripture, is referred to as Samaria. Then 210 years later, the people of the northern kingdom are hauled off into exile by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians and the the Medo-Persian Empire, they wanted to completely destroy the nation of Israel. So after the conquest, after the exile, they they sent Babylonian and Persian Persian soldiers into Samaria, uh, into Israel in the northern kingdom, and they forced marriages with Israeli women. So they just took women off the street and and said, you marry him, and you marry him, and you marry him, and you marry him. And they they formed these mixed households. And the children that were born as the result of those mixed marriages were not accepted anywhere. They, They were not Israelis. They weren't considered to be proper Jews, and they weren't considered to be Babylonians. They became known as Samaritans. And by the time of the coming coming of Jesus the descendants of these people were were really considered to be absolutely literally the scum of the earth and and the great racial hatred between the the proper Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah and these Samaritan de- descendants from the northern kingdom it it underlies uh, many of the stories Jesus told in his teaching And if you understand the the roots of all that, the stories mean much more. See, when you understand that bit of history, then you understand the story of the good Samaritan, you understand it a lot better. Because Jesus, he was making a statement even by telling that story. Because good and Samaritan to the first century Jew in Jerusalem, that was an oxymoron. Good Samaritan? To them, they thought, "What? What can that possibly mean? All Samaritans are bad." It would be like us saying today, "the the good gangster," or you know, the you know, the the good outlaw, or the you know, the good ruffian, or whatever you want to say. The good lawyer. I <laughs> know I shouldn't say that. Uh, if you're a lawyer watching, you have to forgive me. Jesus says so. So, so that gives you something of the of the background there. So where we are now. Now Omri dies and uh, and the capital is in Samaria and his son Ahab comes to the throne and Ahab decides to do more or less what Jeroboam did remember jo- Jeroboam built the two the two golden calves and he decided to sever ties religiously and politically with the southern kingdom now Ahab decides to do the same thing to reinforce his control over the northern kingdom so for religious and political purposes he decides to take the idolatry of the northern kingdom to a whole new altitude and in order to do that he marries a woman named Jezebel whose name has become synonymous with wicked women for thousands of years however probably not, uh, not for all the, the, the right reasons probably for different reasons than what many of us think now Jezebel was the daughter of a man named Ethbal Ethbal. Ethbal was the king of Sidon. And that ancient city, along with its twin city of Tyre, bespoke Gentile evil, it, it, pagan evil to the whole world. For the, from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the twin cities of evil in the Middle East were Tyre and Sidon. That was their reputation. So what happens here is the, the king of Israel marries the daughter of the wickedest king in the wickedest city from the wickedest country in all the world. So... Now, Josephus, you may not have heard of him, but he, he's an, uh, a Jewish historian. He has a book called Antiqu- Antiquities. He, he informs us of two facts that Scripture doesn't tell us about this man. And they're important facts. The first is that Jezebel's father, Ethbaal, was not only the king of Sidon, but he was also the high priest of the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. A- and the second thing is that he had come to the throne of Sidon By murdering his own brother who was the king at the time. So Jezebel is the daughter of a high priest who has become king by murdering her uncle, uh, his brother. And evidently what happens is Jezebel receives from her father both his religious fervor for the sensual pagan worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. And his own murderous ambition because we see that in the story of Ahab and Jezebel. In other words she got the worst of every possible trait uh, that her father had. Now Ahab, for his part, he's often thought of by many people as a weakling, People tend to think of Ahab as a weakling, that he was just sort of under the thumb of Jezebel and did whatever she said. However, I don't think that's really a fair or at least a full understanding of it because, because he was a warrior king. In fact, he was highly successful as a warrior. He was a builder. First Kings 22, uh, 39, it, it tells about ivory palaces that he built. built. It talks about cities that he built. It, it talks about streets and avenues and boulevards that he designed. He was He was quite an architect. And the builder, he, he was a patron of the arts. he was a consummate politician, not in any positive sense or noble sense. He was a wicked, wicked man, but he knew what he was doing uh, politically. He he was petulant. He he was full of uh, self-indulgence. He was greedy. He was covetous. He was idolatrous. And and here's the thing. These two evil people, the relationship between these two people, Jezebel and Ahab, that forms the background of the entire ministry of Elijah the prophet. Their religion, the, the religion of Baal and Ashtoreth, was a was really a resurrection of, of, an, of the ancient Canaanite evil, which God had denounced even from the times of Moses. Listen to the characteristics of the religion of Baal and Ashtoreth. Listen, it's very important. It was a religion that emphasized the inherent force of nature. Are you, are you listening? Pay attention. Trees became holy objects with inherent uh, 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 sanctity of their own. Uh, so they were they were not only symbolic of God, but in a sense the Canaanites worshipped the tree itself. The result was that there were there were holy orchards, there were groves that were planted, and, and worship to Baal and Asherah went on in these groves on the tops of mountains. But even the groves themselves became objects of worship. Baal, the the male god, was a god who symbolized fertilization and sexual prowess. Asherah, the the female, the goddess symbolized productivity and sensuality. Therefore, now now listen to this. Therefore, the religion of Baal and Ashtoreth was a religion that worshipped abundance, economic power, political ruthlessness, sexual sensuality, and the inherent force of nature. It worshipped nature. It made sensuality a virtue. It, It exalted ritual. I mean, wild, flamboyant, exciting titillating ritual worship services that were filled of all kinds of things uh, uh, that were exciting to people. It it glorified greed and sex. And and terms like sin had absolutely no place in the lexicon of Baal and Ashtoreth. There was no such thing as sin. There was only the worship of nature and natural, uh, the natural force uh, inherent in the things of nature and the denial of God the Father. Does this sound familiar to anybody? In other words, it is the basic foundation of all that is the core of modern and postmodern philosophy and thinking. It is fundamentally a rearticulation of the ancient lie worship the creature, not the creator, and the exaltation of sensuality and productivity and abundance. So to have is more important than how you got it. uh, Pleasure becomes more important than virtue and power is more important than being noble at heart. And that's the supernatural. It doesn't deny the supernatural, but the supernatural is to be enjoyed for how it can make me feel and for what it can get for me in cold, hard terms. And, And the act of of yielding to a holy and righteous God, that would have been complete anathema to the worshipers of Baal and and Ashtoreth. Therefore, what happened was Ahab used Jezebel to strengthen his political power through religious terms and to satisfy his insatiable greed. And Jezebel was willing to use Ahab in order to further her own ambition. I mean, to be the daughter of the king is one thing, but to be the wife of a king is another She was also willing to use Ahab in order to further her own personal and religious and social agenda for the exaltation of the priesthood of Baal and Ashtoreth and for the exaltation of femininity. Uh, Is everybody awake? Okay. I I tell you, this is very important. The, The language of Baal and Ashtoreth was institutionalized at the highest strata of government. Therefore, sin became virtue Corruption became institutionalized. Politics and religion were based on idolatry. Virtue became rebellion in the eyes of the government because the, the call for righteousness violated the basic precepts of the government. Therefore, if you violated the precepts of the government, you were a rebel against the government. Therefore, to call out that Yahweh is Lord meant that you were a rebel against the existing government. Therefore, the king was the lord of unhindered murderous power and his wife was a woman of murderous ambition and greed and the leader of a manipulative evil idolatrous religion that exalted the power of the feminine mystique now before we close tonight uh, let me just teach you something can i do that all right here we go (laughs) i'm gonna do it anyway doesn't matter if you say yes i just asked permission to make you feel better uh, but, uh, but here's, here's something, to, to just a principle when you're reading your Bible. Watch in the Bible for things that jump at you. When, when you're, just, you're just kind of riding along, you know, and all of a sudden a, a landmine goes off in your face. You know what I'm talking about? Watch for things. You know, where you're just reading your Bible and all of a sudden a, a fish jumps up off the pages and punches you in the solar plexus. You're kind of reading along here and, 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 and through through the whole first sixteen chapters of first Kings, and there's there's one evil king after another after another, and this happens and that happens, and there's plots and machinations and schemes and desperate evil. That one is murdered, this one commits suicide, this guy dies, and his son comes, but he's worse than his dad. Ahab marries Jezebel. I mean, a, a fabric of social and institutional evil and corruption and, and idolatry is just sort of sort of being weaved in front. Of you, and then out of nowhere comes Elijah. There is no previous reference to Elijah until he opens his mouth in front of King Ahab. There's no previous reference to Elijah until all of a sudden, it says in seventeen one. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, he just walked right into the presence of the king, and he said, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will not be dew or rain these years except by my word. Boom! I mean, boom, just like that. He's there. You're just reading along about this tapestry of of monstrous wickedness. Then all of a sudden, there's power. There's Elijah. William Wilberforce called Elijah. He said he was the lightning bolt of God that shoots through the room, shining its dreadful light on every corner of evil. But I want you to see what he says when he goes before Ahab. He starts off by saying, As the Lord God of Israel lives. Not golden calves on Mount Gerizim. Not the statues of Baal and Ashtoreth being worshipped with temple prostitution in Samaria, but the Lord God of Israel. He says, he goes on, the second thing he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Now, why before whom I stand? Why say that? He's he's saying, I claim authority. I stand before God. Therefore, I will not respect the authority of this court. Therefore, I have no fear of this court. In other words, he puts Ahab and Jezebel on notice. He says, I'm here representing the highest authority. You know, if you stand before the king of kings, Like Elijah was, you're not afraid of some little old pistol-packing mama sitting on top of Mount Gerizim plotting the murder of her own husband. He says, before whom I stand, I stand before God. You know, there, there is a, a boldness. There, a, it's a ferocious boldness that fills a heart that has been bared before God. The, a heart that has been, been raked open by the hands of the Holy Spirit, inspected and sanctified and sealed with the hands of God. Listen, lips that have been touched with the coals off of the altar are not afraid to speak the truth of God boldly in the presence of anyone, anywhere. To stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and, and to know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, I have heard this from God. It's not just some kind of a guess. I have been in the presence of God, and I fear no lesser king. You know, one of the great truths of boldness in the life of the Spirit is this. You cannot fear two things equally at the same time. You cannot fear two things equally at the same time. If you fear culture, society, public censure, peer pressure, being thought a fool, if you fear those things, you cannot fully fear God. However, if you fear God, if you fear, really fear God, fear disappointing him. You know, listen, I, I don't want to disappoint any of you. I, I don't want any, any of you to think badly of me. But if I fear God more than I fear that then I'm not going to get caught up in that dilemma. I might obey God, but but what would Chuck say? I might obey God, but what would Jason say? I might obey God, but what would my friends think? What would what would they say on Facebook? Well, I mean, listen, that's all re- resolved if I'm afraid to disobey God, if I fear him more than what, what others think of me. See, you know, the, the thing is, in today's church, we just don't really even talk about the fear of god anymore and 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 there's two aspects of the fear of god yes and and rightfully so we talk about fear being just this holy awe this holy reverence but there's also places where that use that word is used in, in the in the sense of a stark raving terror And i'm telling you this if you stand before the presence of god physically right now You would would understand that that sense of, of fear of God, of understanding. Listen, this being, this God is so much greater and so much more powerful than I ever dreamed he was. It's the reason why people fell down like dead men in his presence. Nevertheless, Elijah says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. He says... I don't fear you. I'm not afraid of this country. I'm not afraid of life. And I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of your armies. I'm not afraid of your demonized wife. I'm not afraid of any power that you have. I have stood before God. I have stood before God. Then the third thing he says is this He ends that verse by saying, There will not be dew or rain these years except by my word. Don't be rain. Don't be any dew. All these years coming ahead, until I say so, and until God says so, I won't say so. Now, why would he say that? I mean, he could have, he could have chosen anything. There could have been any, any uh, judgment that, that could have been chosen. But let's go back to this. What was one of the things that was at the heart of the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth? It was the glorification of the inherent power of nature. So the God of Israel says, you worship nature, you worship rain, you worship abundant crops, you worship the trees, well, try this, make it rain, chump. Irrigate this, Ahab, that's what he says. He just, and he just sucks up all the moisture. There's not even any dew in the morning. This is, he says, this is serious drought until God says so, and when God says so, I'll come and tell you, but until then, King Ahab, you better buy yourself some Pepsi or something. Because there's not going to be any water. In other words, th- this is honestly, this is a shocking punch from God in their, from their perspective. He says, "You worship things that I make. He's, he's, you may as well worship an ashtray as, as to worship a tree or a, or, or a plant or a flower." Now, now listen to this. I'm going to close with this. Here it is. Who is Elijah? we don't know where was he born well maybe he was born in tishba he is called a tishbite after all but the the thing is that word is very close to another hebrew word that that means a reformer so nobody is really quite sure whether it means elijah the reformer or reformer or elijah the guy from tishba all we know is, is that he was a galilean All we know is that he had the same spirit that was upon him that was on John the Baptist. All we know is that he heard from God. All we know is that he appeared on the scene like a cannon blast from heaven. All we know is that really we we don't know of his beginning and he had no death, death. He was taken up on a chariot of fire. All we know is that he was the explosive hand of God in a generation that had gone completely nuts with sin. All we know is really nothing about him. I mean, who is he? What did he do before he showed up on the scene? Maybe he ran a hardware store in Tishba. And he prayed every day while he sorted the nuts and bolts. And one day God says to Elijah, go tell the king, it will never rain again until I tell you to tell him otherwise. He's not a preacher. He's not a priest. He's not a rabbi. He's just this wild guy who burst onto the stage of the the nation. The fire of God burning in his eyes, afraid of nothing. Now, he had his problems. The book of James says that he had his passions just like we do. We know that at times he struggled with depression, as, by the way, many great servants of God who live close to God also struggle with deep depression. Jeremiah also was given to deep, morbid depression. We know he struggled with doubt. But what he didn't struggle with was fear. Fear of that king on that day to pronounce that word. You know, I believe America has so thoroughly lost her footing, she, she, has, she has slipped the ropes and, and drifted from the wharf so far out to sea that we're in danger of losing sight of the shoreline. However, however, I also believe that from somewhere, from some corner, from some place, maybe a vast multiplicity of places, God will raise up the voices of men and women, of young men and young women, of boys and girls who will mount to the stage of the history of this country and say, I stand before God and I'm not afraid of anything this generation can can say or do to me. You know, thus says the Lord, has disappeared from the language. But I believe before God that in these troubled times, we shall hear it again. God is going to raise up a generation. He's going to raise up people. You see all these things going on, crazy things, things that you probably never thought you'd see in your lifetime. And I want you to know that the the enemy is working overtime. He's working hard to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I want you to understand this, that he is not being outworked uh, by, by, God is not being outworked by Satan. The Holy Spirit is at work and he's dealing with hearts. He's raising up men and women of God, other troublemakers for troubled times. He's raising up men and women and, and boys and girls and teenagers who love God more than they, than they love anything else and who fear God more than they fear the rejection of their peers who are being raised up as, as prophet, prophetic voices for this generation saying, thus says the Lord and God will use them. To bring revival to this nation, I believe that with all my heart. And if you, even if you don't believe that, at least <laughs> begin to pray for that. But I'll, I'll add this: Don't pray for it and say, "God, raise somebody else up." Act like Isaiah. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, when he entered into the presence of God, and the Lord asked that fateful question, "Whom shall I send?" Who will go for us? Isaiah didn't say, I heard about a guy named Jeremiah. Maybe you ought to send him. He didn't say, Well, I got a buddy down the street. He seems like a good guy. He's really gifted. I think you ought to send him. Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. So as you pray, don't just pray and and say, God, use other people. But make the core of your prayer to say, Here is, Am I, God? Send me. Raise me up as a voice to a generation that is lost and that is hurting, to a nation that has lost her way, to a, a family maybe that, that you, you just, your heart is broken over. Say, God, raise me up. Use me if you can. You say, I'm nobody. Neither was Elijah. He just appeared on the scene out of nowhere. And nobody That God used to speak to a king He can do the same thing in you Bow your head and I want to pray for you tonight. Lord I thank you That that you have the power to raise up nobodies. In fact, Lord I believe you actually prefer to raise up nobodies because when you do that you get all the glory And lord, I can't speak for anybody else, but here I am lord as as just a nobody And I want to be like isaiah and I say lord here am I send me Lord, I pray that you would raise up a new, a new generation of, of people who are who speak boldly the truth of the gospel and, and, and not getting sidetracked on all kinds of side issues, but stick to the, to the issue, Lord God, that, that Jesus saves, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can transform lives. And I pray, God, that in Jesus' name, you would raise us up. Raise us up, God. This nation needs you. And Lord... Uh, King Ahab saw Elijah as a troublemaker because he was disrupting the evil of the nation. And so, God, I know that there will be people in this nation that will see people of God as troublemakers. But, Lord, let it be because, not because we argue with them politically, but let it be because, Lord God, our lives and our message and our ministry disrupts the evil that's going on in this nation. Raise up your church, God. Raise up the people of God. And we say, here we are, Lord God, use us. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.